This is Profiles in Risk. Hosted by Nick Lamparelli. Every week, we interview those who risk life, limb, fortunes, career, and reputation, and those who work behind the scenes who look to protect and enlighten us about risk. You can find the show notes and other insurance-related content at insnerds.com. That's I-N-S-N-E-R-D-S dot com. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Profiles in Risk. I am your host, Nick Lamparelli. I'm uh, very pleased this morning to have to continue to try to uh, expand the insurance service organizations, not ISO, but just other organizations' um, uh, ability to reach out and work with insurance professionals. This morning, I am pleased to introduce Kevin O'Brien. Kevin is the president and CEO of the Inland Marine Underwriters Association, or as it is, as it is commonly known, the IMUA. And Kevin, I'm uh, ecstatic to have you on this morning. Great to be with you, Nick. Uh, so uh, I'm going through uh, my email this morning, Kevin, business insurance, where I get my daily news. Uh, first, first headline, subcontractor default insurance market set to expand. Uh, right underneath that, drone users. Uh, three lines underneath that, there's uh, information about construction, all lending itself to Inland Marine coverage. Uh, it's, uh, Inland Marine is embedded in so much of what we do in insurance and as professionals. I don't think, I don't think a lot of professionals realize how, how uh, expansive Inland Marine is. So I wanted to start this off for the audience's sake. Uh, to talk about Inland Marine, what is Inland Marine Insurance? I think that's probably a great direction to go in, Nick, because Inland Marine is a little bit of an obscure line of uh, insurance. It's a, it's a property niche line. And basically, uh, it was created in the early 1900s to, uh, to complement ocean cargo insurance. Um, as goods were coming into the country uh, via ship, uh, once they got on land, they were getting on trucks and rail. And, and it gave birth to Inland Marine Insurance. Um, and and as, as we move forward, Inland Marine became a little bit more expanded into uh, risks that are associated with like transportation and communication. So, you know, things like bridges, uh, tunnels, goods in transit, uh, radio cell towers, uh, computers, um, contractors' equipment. So they all came under this uh, Inland Marine niche, uh, if you will. And that, and that industry has expanded, and, and it is quite a vital part of, uh, of the insurance marketplace overall, even though it only represents about 2% of the total property and casualty premiums. So it, it, it is important, and, and what's, uh, as I mentioned, it's tied into two uh, areas, the um, communication and transportation, uh, but also transportation and construction uh, are what Inland Marine is really all about. Those are the primary lines. In construction, you have uh, builder's risk insurance, which is uh, coverage for uh, buildings while in the course of construction. And you also have contractor's equipment, which is a major line. Uh, transportation, you have uh, motor truck cargo insurance, goods in transit, and you have warehouse legal liability. 
Uh, we also have uh, fine art is, is a major part of, uh, of Inland Marine. Uh, generally, my rule of thumb, Kevin, is if, if I can't immediately recognize what sort of property insurance I'm dealing with, uh, my rule of thumb is it's probably Inland Marine. <laughs> it's, it's worked well for me. I could just, uh, you know, when I was a broker, if I didn't understand what I was looking at, I would just call an Inland Marine underwriter. They would help me sort it out. Yep. Yeah, in fact, I was a broker for almost 25 years, Nick, and uh, I knew enough about Inland Marine to, to get in trouble. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the Inland Marine Underwriters Association. Uh, first, what is that? What do you, uh, what's its mission? Okay, so uh, the, the IMUA was started in 1930, and basically it's an insurance company trade association, a nonprofit and the mission is, you know, kind of twofold, and I'll get into those areas a little bit later, but uh, it's really advocacy and, and education are our primary objectives. But so the IMUA today has about uh, 52 insurance company members, and, and there are, that's our primary focus, uh, you know, the Chubb, Hartford, CNAs of the world. We also have uh, over 25 associate members, and that would be attorneys, art dealers, MGAs, people that are not underwriting uh, in the marine lines of business, but are involved in the industry uh, through various paths. And in that group of our member companies and our associate member companies, we have about 3,500 industry professionals. And that's really the group that we serve. Uh, so we serve the companies uh, in an advocacy uh, fashion, and we serve the 3,500 industry professionals with education and training. Um, in in the marine is, is kind of a unique line of business in that most of the classes of business are uh, on a non-file basis. And, and what that means is that the various insurance departments around the country uh, do not require a form or rate filing. So it leaves it uh, fairly flexible for, for our insurance company members in terms of responding to the needs of the marketplace. Um, so one of the things as far as advocacy that we're very highly interested and sensitive to is we'd like to do as much as we can to maintain that non-filed status of the inland marine lines of business. And it is it, it, it does change from state to state, but overall, uh, it's a unique aspect of the business. It allows for creativity, it allows for market response, and, and it's something that's very important to our members. So that's, that's where the advocacy level comes in. We're not a lobbying firm by any stretch, we don't lobby. We do monitor uh, you know, state activity and, and, and where it needed. Uh, you know, respond to the states and, and try to help them see that Inland Marine should be a non-filed class. Uh, th that's interesting you brought that up. I, I want I want to uh, go in that direction a little bit. I, I took a construction class, uh, probably, you know, sometime, sometime in 2018. Uh, the instructor really pressed on that particular aspect of Inland Marine. Uh, we I think we were doing Builder's Risk uh, we were having that conversation at the time and talked about uh, her instruction was um, because of the flexibility um, when you're doing a builder's risk, when you get that chance, you should always use a non-filed product because it just gives you the most flexibility to work with the customer to craft it. The, because, you know, when you're dealing with construction or anything like that, it's very hard to make it homogenous. Um, there's always something that kind of bubbles to the surface that makes it complicated and you want that flexibility to be able to go in, add the coverage, remove the coverage, change the deductible, get the pricing that you need. 
Um, what's that fine line? What's from from filing to non-filing? Um, what's what if there was like a rule of thumb? Where, at what point does it sort of fall out of? Well, this really needs to be filed. How do the state regulators make that determination? Um, because I, I I do like that aspect of the inland marine uh, DIC coverages where you do have that flexibility. I I think that's a that's a winning formula in this complicated insurance marketplace. And uh, kind of from a self-serving standpoint, I'd like to learn more about what that gray area is and when you can and when you can't. Actually, Nick, when you find out, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, it is, and, and again, it varies uh, state to state. And you know, the, the, the unique part of, of inland marine lines of business is, is that the risk that you're insuring is always different. And, and a lot of times it's moving. Fine art is always on the move between owners, galleries, uh, contractors' equipment, constantly on the move. You don't know where it's going to be used. You don't know how it's going to be used. Uh, builders' risk, totally different in, in downtown Manhattan versus uh, uh, Boise, Montana. So all those things come into play, and that's why I think uh, you know the, the various state insurance departments understand that there needs to be a little rate flexibility. And also that you know some of these policies do have to have manuscripted endorsements. So I, I think that's kind of the way that evolves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the why does it, why do in, uh, insurance professionals in and around Inland Marine why do they need a service organization uh, to work with? Well, over the years, and especially I would say within the last twenty twenty five years, uh, as you know, insurance companies have dramatically cut back on their in-house education. Uh, and because Inland Marine only represents 2% of, of a property casualty premium, uh, the in-house education for Inland Marine, you know, basically d disappeared from the landscape in terms of within our insurance company members. And we've picked up that, that, that void and really dedicated ourselves to providing various educational uh, formats for our members because they, they need it. It's not available anywhere else. Well, a couple minor uh, uh, other opportunities that are out there that we can talk about. But so what we do is, um, you know, through webinars, uh, seminars on a regional basis, we have our annual conference, which attracts over 300 folks. And that's, you know, very much an education uh, format. Uh, and, you know, so that's where we're trying to deliver value and, and maintain relevance. What we're doing right now, Nick, is we're, we're just launching a project uh, to develop online e-learning courses. And we're tackling that. We have a two-day intro to commercial inland marine course. We run it every September, and it deals with each of the various lines, builder's risk, contractor's equipment, fine art, et cetera. Now, what we're doing is we're taking those courses, and we're having them made into an online, on-demand format so that our members can access it, whatever's convenient for them. They don't have to come travel to, to New York or to other locations to get the education. And we're really excited about that because I think that's a, it's a big need. Ultimately, what, we, what we'd love to do is to take it past the intro course and, and have more comprehensive courses for each of those uh, classes of business, which can result in a certificate in, in La Marine. So that, that's on the drawing board, not you know coming anytime soon. Right now we're tackling the intro course. but. Uh, that's, that's our focus, is giving the folks, the industry professionals, uh, the education that they need to be successful at their job. 
And generally, your courses uh, do qualify for continuing education credits. Uh, yes, especially we're, we're, we're uh, that's a tough thing countrywide because it, it, that's another one that varies by state. Yeah. But yes, we, we definitely do pursue uh, CE credits, and especially with some of the you know the education programs that we deliver that also have a very uh, att- attractive part to our broker community. That's one of the things that we've uh, really concentrated on. I guess over the last three years or so, uh, our members said, hey, look, it, it would be so much more beneficial if your events included brokers. Uh, and I think one of the key reasons for that is they would like brokers there because they can justify uh, the expense of attending the event. Um, <laughs> but they so, can, also get, so they can we, also get deals done too, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, networking is a, is a big part of, of, of what we deliver to our members. Completely. Um, you know, all, all of the education events that we do, we try to build in uh, time for, for networking, you know, uh, renewing old friendships and, and, and making new contacts. So uh, the broker community, we launched a, um, a program called the Producer Affiliate. And what that does is it allows uh, brokers to access IMUA uh, without paying dues or an assessment. Uh, they can access IMUA and they can make themselves, um, they, they can take advantage of our courses at member prices. And, and it's, it's done very well. We have over 140 different brokerage firms throughout the country and about 600 of, of their in-house uh, producers or brokers that are in our database now. And we're definitely seeing an uptick in, in the involvement uh, with the broker community. Yeah. Uh, what uh, what are your your large event that you have? Where is it? Generally, when do you have it? And uh, what what sort of uh, speakers, panelists do do you or educational opportunities exist for that large event? So uh, we call it still the annual meeting, which is kind of a, an old fashioned term, but we like it. It works, and um, we do it every May primarily May, it has been occasionally in June or April. And what that is, it's a, it's a two-day format of, of, of education. Uh, so we try to bounce back and forth between the West Coast and the East Coast. So this past May, we were out at um, the Hyatt Regency Scottsdale. And we broke the, uh, the 300 attendee barrier for the first time. Uh, if we go back about six years ago, we were you know, running maybe 200 folks would come to the conference. And and the last few years, we've been up at 280, 285, and I, I think uh, Scottsdale was about 315. Uh, for 2019, we'll be at the uh, Lansdowne Resort, which is in uh, Leesburg, Virginia, uh, 15 minutes outside of Dulles Airport and about 40 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, and, and the format for the meetings is we come in, we kick it off on a Sunday night uh, with a nice cocktail party and dinner, again, a, a, a good networking opportunity. Uh, Monday, we have a keynote speaker. Uh, this uh, coming 2019, that'll be Jerry Theodoro, uh, who is with Conning and & Company, and, and very astute in terms of what's happening in the inland marine business and, and you know, the property casualty industry at large. And then we have, um, we have five other uh, education sessions, uh, 90 minutes in length, basically. Uh, one of them will be on uh, builder's risk, uh, soft cost, uh, delay in startup and completion. Uh, we have another session on uh, uh, supply chain disruption. And then a, a kind of a neat thing that we're doing this year is we have, uh, we've recruited four millennials uh, to do a session on lessons from losses. 
And and so what that entails is each one will will you know uh, highlight a claim or a loss that they've experienced or had had some experience with, whitewash it to protect the the innocent and the guilty, and, and then spend about you know 20 minutes talking about the nature of the loss, uh, what happened, what went wrong, what could have been done differently. Uh, and, and so we're really looking forward to that format. We did that a few years ago, and it was very well received. Um, so that's kind of the way the conference works. We have AM Best uh, TV on site uh, each year for the past couple of years, and they'll be there again in, uh, at Lansdowne. And what they do is they, you know, they're filming interviews with folks throughout the conference. It's not taping the uh, sessions, but it's uh, doing interviews with the presenters, with, with various underwriters and managers and so on. And that's been really nice. I think um, – we did the conference in, in Scottsdale with AM Best, and I think to date we've had about 4,000 hits on the AM Best TV site uh, to, to kind of view various portions of the conference. So I think that gives us some nice exposure to the industry. Yeah, you, you brought up millennials. Um, that's an interesting topic. Uh, it's already difficult to get young professionals to come into insurance. Uh, big focus of insurance nerds, and this and one of the reasons for launching this podcast was to bring exposure. Um, but extending that out, Inland Marine is uh, probably very, very much uh, underknown um, than you know traditional insurance. But I would think Inland Marine is actually a, a that sort of exciting, uh, potentially exciting. Um, aspect of insurance that probably would be quite attractive to millennials. I mean, we're dealing with the more complicated uh, uh, exposures. Uh, a lot of them could be technical in nature. You, I remember you, at one point you you talked uh, about communication and computers, but it, I mean, it could go all the way to uh, drones. It could, you know, it could get really complicated in its uh, in its exposure, which to me would lend itself to be to being quite attractive to millennials. Um, what are your thoughts about that? What are your thoughts about uh, work figuring out additional ways to get younger professionals not only to come in into insurance, but why not come into Inland Marine? Sure. No, yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. It's um, Inland Marine requires uh, some creative thinking from an underwriter standpoint. Uh, in fact, there's an old saying in the industry that Inland Marine requires it's more of an art than a science in terms of inland marine underwriting uh, because of the various uh, you know, uh, changes in the exposures. So what we've done, uh, one of the interesting things we've done with that, Nick, is that at our annual conference each year, we award what we call four scholarships to students at risk management schools. And a scholarship is a all-expense-paid all uh, all trip to the annual conference. And we've been doing that for, for several years now uh, we started the program with the Katy School, which is uh, Illinois State University, a very prominent risk management school. So they've kind of been the anchor each year. They get two of the awards. Uh, and then we try to select a risk management school uh, uh, kind of local to the, uh, the venue. Uh, so this year we'll have Virginia Commonwealth. We'll also have two of those. Um, and, and so we believe that that gives us some pretty good exposure. We also have a whiteboard video that could be viewed on our website in our membership area. And the whiteboard video is, is just about a two-minute segment that says, uh, what is in La Marine insurance? And it goes through the exposures and, and, and why it's an interesting um, uh, career. And what we do is we, uh, you know, send that out to risk management schools just so they can kind of use it as an educational piece for their students. So 
we're, we're, we're definitely trying to make inroads into that group. And, and as you said earlier, it, it's a big challenge for the insurance companies to recruit that talent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how about your background? How, how was the lore of insurance strong enough to recruit Kevin O'Brien into insurance? <laughs> I love to ask that question to the young folks. And mine is a classic, good enough. Uh, I got out of college and I was selling uh, copy machines for 3M in, in Manhattan. So, uh, you know, I had a video training for copy machines, was given a 10 block uh, territory in, in the middle of Manhattan and told to stay away from any large companies. Uh, and so about three or four months later into that gig, I was scheduled to go on uh, 100% commission. So uh, having placed, I think, one machine in that time, I decided, okay, it's time to move on. And um, I, I just went to a, uh, you know, an employment firm and got a job as a supervisor with operations at Allstate Insurance. Uh, that lasted about two years. And interestingly enough, those were the days where they had big service centers, Nick. And so yeah. the one I worked at was on Long Island, and there was probably 500 folks in, in, that, in that campus. And everybody was, you know, 90% of them were between, uh, you know, 20 and 30. And uh, of those folks, 90% of them were young females. So it was an interesting place to work. Uh, unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, I, uh, I got engaged about two weeks after I, I started there. So, mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, so I worked at Allstate and I actually transferred over to, to be an agent with them and did the, uh, the Sears booth routine. Uh, then I went to the independent. Kevin, sorry to interrupt you. For for those that sure. those that are listening that may not understand that, can you explain the reference to the Sears booth? Yeah, actually, I guess it does need to be explained since <laughs> Sears has kind of gone away too. But so in those days, uh, Sears owned Allstate, and uh, and what you would do as a broker once you got your training, you would be assigned to a Sears store, and the Sears stores they all had a booth which basically usually had about two agents, um, uh, you know, on duty at, at all store hours. And the idea there was that you got exposure to the customers and, and it helped you build up your book of business. Uh, if you, you know, were successful in building up a book of business, you could move out to a neighborhood sales office. Uh, so that's kind of, that was, that was the, the, the route that that went. I guess my, uh, my problem with Allstate was uh, when I was there, you know, primarily was auto and homeowners and you could make a very good living. It had a, a really nice compensation plan, but they ended up um, they ended up requiring some heavy life insurance requirements from the from the agents, and the product wasn't that good. And so I, I kind of decided to move on, and I ended up with the Independent Insurance Agents of America, which is a national trade association for agents and brokers. They were headquartered in New York, and I spent about six years with them until they moved to Washington D.C. And I had seen the lifestyle of, of many brokers, which was pretty nice. So that's why I, I jumped into the broker world and uh, did commercial insurance for about, uh, for about 20 years. Uh, most of it with a regional uh, agency on Long Island, which had a heavy construction focus. And, um, and then uh, I guess in 2011 is when I, I kind of uh, sold my shares in, in that business and, um, and then joined the IMUA. Oh, kind, of, kind of came, 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 came full circle from, from the agents association to the underwriting association. So. Great background. And uh, the, the reference to Allstate and Sears uh, just goes to show you um, it, the industry has evolved quite a bit. 
Um, it's very much different than the way it operated in the 70s or in the 80s or even in the 90s. Some things, frustratingly, are still uh, functioning in the same way, but that's uh, usually, I think, uh, technology in the background that's uh, part of the biggest problem. Um, the future of, of Inland Marine. Um, I'm seeing, again, getting back to the tech aspect of it, we're dealing with sensors, IoT, uh, you brought up supply chain, um, which is can mix sensors and IoT and other very complicated exposures that require, you know, uh, quite a bit of big data, uh, quite a bit of modeling. Uh, what is the future of of Inland Marine? When when as you're doing planning for the IMUA and you're peering out five to ten years. Is there anything on the horizon that you're seeing that's like, we need to be prepared for this? Sure. Uh, you know, and we've had uh, at various conferences, we've, we've had this as a topic uh, in terms of, uh, you know, analytics and, and where it's all going. As you mentioned, the Internet of Things and, and, you know, wearables and everything like that. So I think one area that's really come a long way right now is the use of telematics. And, and telematics is basically measuring different things on, on contractors' equipment, uh, such as hours of use, radius of use, um, you know, how, how the machine is being, being operated and so on. So all of that data is now being captured with telematics. The challenge, though, is to, to get that data into the hands of an underwriter at their desk. And, 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 you know, if you think about it, if I'm a contractor and I, I see all this is being recorded with telematics, the only reason I'm going to want to share it with my insurance company is it's going to be a lower price. Yep. And I'm not going to be guaranteed to have a lower price. So that, that's one of the obstacles in that. Um, but it, it's definitely here to stay. Uh, an, another area that we've seen big advances is, is with different types of security. Uh, and I, by that, types of security on, on trucks for uh, seals for, um, uh, for cargo, uh, security at job sites, for builders risk. That's become a, a really big thing. Uh, there's a, a company called Tattletail out there that's uh, kind of uh, exhibited our trade show. And what they have, they have various alarm systems that are internet based for, for job sites that are in the course of construction. And they'll measure, obviously they, you know, have a fire alarm system, but they also will now be able to measure uh, the presence of water and water damage has become the new fire for for builders risk uh, exposures uh, so th there's a whole lot going on there uh, in the fine art world uh, th there is a product now that will attach to the it may be a dime shaped uh, item it'll attach to the back of a piece of fine art and and basically creates an alarm system for it if you don't want it to be moved from from its location so there's there's a whole lot going on there and the challenge as i said earlier is, is you know, the data's out there, but how do you capture that data and how do you bring it to a meaningful format for your underwriter? Yeah. Do you, do you think because of that, because that uh, data and technology has also spilled over to the traditional PNC world, do you think uh, the lines between traditional property inland marine will uh, get fuzzier? Or do you think there'll be um, situations or more opportunity for inland and traditional property to kind of merge or partner together to solve some of these more complicated exposures? Very interesting question, Nick. I, I think the, the, the 
property casualty world in general is ahead of uh, Inland Marine in terms of, of using analytics and so on. Um, one of the things that's interesting that we've seen a little bit, not, not a whole lot, is that um, some companies are taking, uh, are training their property underwriters in the Inland Marine lines of business. And, and that kind of can take them away from having a standalone Inland Marine operation. Uh, and, and so it expands the, the property underwriters' um, responsibilities, especially companies that are, um, you know, pretty aggressively into construction. So when you get a construction risk, there's going to be uh, builder's risk, there's going to be contractor's equipment, there's going to be GL, and there's going to be standard property. And a lot of those folks are now training, they're cross-selling their underwriters, their property underwriters, in the inland marine lines. Um, and, and, and in some cases, you know, the inland marine is kind of, uh, uh, drifting off a little bit. We don't see a whole lot of it, but that is one of the one of the trends we we are aware of. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, so, uh, aside from the IMUA, or maybe part of the IMUA, uh, for for people that are listening, how can they raise their game when it comes to Inland Marine? How can they learn about Inland Marine? There uh, are there other resources that you would recommend uh, books, websites, certifications uh, for someone uh, an insurance young insurance professional that's like yeah I, I really want to look into inland marine a little bit more it's it sounds more appealing uh, if you were doing that or you were uh, guiding uh, you know a, a relative how would you guide them to become a uh, to get into inland marine and to also become a, an effective professional. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, I would in- advise them to access the IMUA educational offerings. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that we have that many people are not aware of is we have a pretty extensive library of white papers uh, that are accessible through a search engine on-, on our website. So, for instance, if you wanted to learn about soft costs and builders' risk, you could um, you know you could Google that and you would come up with various papers that that mention that. So that's something that's underutilized, and we're trying to to promote that a little more. However, going outside the uh, IMUA, um, the institute offers a designation, an AMIM uh, designation, which is an associate in marine insurance management, and that encompasses both ocean and inland marine. Uh, and it also, I think, you have in, in those there's two books, uh, AMIM 121 and 122. 122 is the inland, uh, 121 is the ocean. And then I think you need to take a smattering of CPCU courses. And that ends up in a designation uh, you know, through the institutes. Uh, and, and one other outside source that, that is really excellent is Ermi um, has published a book called The Builder's Risk Book. And that's like the Bible of Builder's Risk. It's very, very comprehensive. Uh, in fact, uh, Steve Coombs is just going through a, uh, uh, a rewrite of that. And I think they're expected to launch that in about six months or so. But um, so those are two really good sources. The AMIM 122 course goes through each of the you know the major lines of um, in the marine uh, in a pretty extensive yet you know understandable uh, format. Awesome, awesome. Um, this is uh, Kevin. This is the part of the podcast where I transition over and ask you a couple of personal questions. Um, the, the the one that I didn't put on the agenda, but I've been asking more often, uh, is, is, is if you had to uh, be stranded on a desert island, which album would you take with you? Hmm. <laughs> I'll go with the Beatles' White Album. Oh, nice. 
it, and you got to love that because it's actually two albums in one. So you you get that's right. You get double your money on that one. Okay, I like that. Um, what what tools or techniques do you use to stay productive and or organized? Uh, not a whole lot there. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, a servant to or a slave to Outlook, so that's, okay. you know, that that keeps me organized really. And and as far as productivity goes, I you know, the only thing that I, I kind of try to do is I try to exercise regularly because I think that actually improves your productivity. And I, and I try to do it actually at lunch. Um, it, it breaks up the day really well, and it kind of gives you a, a second wind for the afternoon. I love that. I love that. Not not enough is being done on that part. I, I uh, read an article somewhere where uh, the woman that was talking was uh, she was a former high school athlete, never got really good, but she was saying how regularly she exercised, and she's just always amazed at how good she feels afterwards, and that just sets you off for a fine day. So I I, I like that answer a lot, Kevin. Um, it, have there been any books that have been influential in your business and or personal lives? Well, I saw that on the outline, Nick, and I didn't want to start going into the uh, from good to great and all that stuff. But w- one thing I will say is, you know, something that's a little bit old school, but I would encourage uh, especially younger folks to read the book. And that's uh, Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. And, and two things that I took away from that and still try to practice uh, every day is, one is the fact, the fact that a person's name is the sweetest sounding word to that person in any language. So use it. And basically, when you're interacting with people, try to use their name as much as possible. And the other thing, which is also extremely simple, is you need to train yourself to be a good listener. And so I, you know, I try to take those things away from it from a, uh, you know, a personal standpoint as far as books go. Recently, I've kind of been a little bit into historical fiction. Uh, read the Hamilton Affair, uh, Nightingale, and then Beneath the Scarlet Sky. So each giving some some really good historical perspective to the things that I missed when I was goofing off in school. <laughs> you you don't know this, Kevin, but my my dream is to uh, spend a year or two as a sabbatical writing some historical fiction uh, on World War II. So I I love that uh-huh. genre. Love that genre. I love creative minds that can uh, take a historical topic and kind of dig around the edges of it, you know, give you the educational perspective of, wow, that's what really happened, but then start to bend it. Like, what if this would have happened? What if this one event didn't happen? And then how would it, how history would have played out? So I, I think that's a very underrated uh, genre that um, people are just now getting more creative in. Uh, I would love to, uh, spend some time in there. So um, I will put all of these on the show notes uh, for anyone that's listening. So if you're driving, uh, just go to the website when you, uh, when you get to your destination, don't pull over. Don't try to, don't try to search while you're driving. I uh, want to keep your exposures to a minimum. Uh, but Kevin, this is very insightful about the M- IMUA. I will put uh, all of your connections, all of the IMUA connections and everything we talked about in the show notes for everybody. And I appreciate you coming on and educating us about Inland Marine. Hey, thanks, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity. It was kind of fun. Yeah. Have a great uh, day. Thank you. My, my guest this week has been Kevin O'Brien, president of the IMUA. Kevin, thanks again.